you would again uh, take out your Bibles and let's turn to Genesis chapter 49. And we will be looking today at verses 1 through 28. So Genesis chapter 49, verses 1 through 28. You'll notice that we're not dealing with the entirety of that chapter, although we are almost done. We're very, getting very close to the end of our study in Genesis. So Genesis 49, starting in verse 1. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is fierce. It is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall shall be upon the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his brother shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouched between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, and the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites The horse's heels, so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. A tolly is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches shall... His branches, his branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attack him, shot at him, and harass him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. 
by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph, and on the brow of him who has set apart, who has set apart for his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at the evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for this study in Genesis. It's been long. There's a lot here, and yet we've gleaned much. We pray, Father, now as we hear your word preached, that you would be with your servants. We pray, Father, that we would come to understand this passage, that through it we may delight in our Savior, and in our God, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray that you would plow deeply into our hearts your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what is before us today in, in our text of Scripture is the blessing of Jacob upon his twelve sons, who will then represent the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel. Now, these blessings are really a prophecy. Prophecy from, Je- uh, from Jacob, an oracle, really, from the Lord, which speaks of these men and their tribe's future. How the Lord will, be, how the Lord will bless them, and something of the character of each of the tribes. But even as we look at the immediate fulfillment, what is to happen to these men, what is to happen to their tribes, we also must keep in mind the oracle's far fulfillment. How the prophecy of Jacob points us to the person and to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his bride, the church. The glorious blessings which the church will enjoy in the new heavens and in the new earth. And this then, we can see that God is accomplishing his purposes. Now we've seen this throughout our study. We've, we've, many times we've talked of the providence of God, God's covenant promises, and how God is continually working out his plan, his plan of redemption. God is sovereign over all things. God made covenant promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And he is bringing those covenant promises to fruition. And so this prophecy which Jacob speaks, he speaks over his children. And he speaks over his children with the authority of their, as their father. And yet, its origin is not Jacob. The origin is God himself, and the fulfillment of this will come through God as well. God is sovereign over all that takes place. 
Now, the family and the nation will have great future blessings, but they will also have great future difficulties. Fruitfulness, power, blessings are going to be coupled with scatterings, violence, and turmoil. All you have to do is read the histories in the scriptures. And so what we have here are blessings, but also, you may have noted as we read it, also anti-blessings, which come to the tribe. They come collectively and individually. So there's a uniqueness of each of the tribes, but there's a corporate solidarity as well for the nation. Undergirding all of this is God's free grace. God freely bestowing his blessings on whom he wishes to bless. That blessing ultimately, of course, is found in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who incidentally is to be found at the heart of this prophecy, particularly as we look at the words spoken to Judah. And so as we begin our study, uh, we begin looking as Jacob assembles his sons together, and he, he assembles them to give them one final word before he dies. You'll notice the phrase at the end of verse 2, Israel, your father. Now, Israel, your father, that, that phrase actually frames, it provides something of a frame for this whole section. This is the final word of the patriarch as he's on his deathbed. So here he is giving a blessing to each of the tribes of Israel, and this is the last of actually a triad of blessings, which first began with Jacob's blessing upon Pharaoh. And then he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. And now here, finally, he gives the blessing upon the twelve sons. Now, as already noted, Jacob speaks as a prophet here, and he is bestowing these blessings. He's speaking of events and of places for each of the tribes as they would come from these sons. And in something of a paradox, what the author calls blessings are, in some sense, as has already been mentioned, they're anti-blessings, they're even curses. We see this given to Reuben and Simeon and Levi, for example. In fact, here's the first three. We don't even get to a blessing until we get to Judah, really. But even as they appear to be the opposite of blessings, in the context of the nation and of God's purposes, what is being declared here is, in fact, a blessing. Because we need to keep in mind that not only the individual nature of each of these, but also the corporate nature of what Jacob is speaking here. And so Jacob calls his sons together. Now, notice how this uh, contrasts with Isaac's closed-door blessing. We had seen this many weeks prior. Um, You may not remember it that well. It's been a while. But, uh, you know, Isaac kind of gives this, you know, sort of behind-closed-door blessing. Here, uh, and, and of course in that context too, is Jacob's deceptive schemes to gain blessing, which was actually meant for his brother. Here, you have all of the twelve brothers together, hearing everything that's said to everybody else. All that is bestowed upon each one individually is bestowed on them corporately together. They all hear everything 
together. And so the brothers are assembled together. Jacob speaks to them, and he's to give them what shall happen to you in days to come. He's speaking about the things which are happening in the future. And again, Jacob is speaking as a prophet, inspired by God. And he is speaking a blessing which originates not with himself, but with the Lord. Now the first set of prophecies given concerned Leah's first three sons, and these do not have a happy orientation, but pronounce punishments because of sins. Notice as well that unlike most of what comes after, these don't incorporate animal imagery. We find this in many of the other blessings, but here we don't find that. Now Reuben, he was the firstborn and he had the honor of the firstborn. This should have guaranteed him the rights to a double portion of an inheritance and leadership in the family. This was his right as the firstborn. But this is not how things were going to work out for them. Typically in the, in the ancient Near East, the alteration of an inheritance was not simply at the whim of the father. The father just couldn't say, well, you know, I want to give this away to somebody else. It's based on birthrights. However, the double portion was not to go to Reuben and in fact had already been given to Joseph and his two sons. Reuben and his tribe should have carried the strength and the dignity of Jacob and of Israel as a nation. He should have been the leader of the nation. But because of his instability, and you'll note that Jacob calls him unstable as water, Because of his instability, he has lost preeminence. You understand what it is to be unstable as water if you've ever been out on a lake or perhaps even on a river. A storm comes up, you you might get tossed to and fro. This is Reuben's personality, his character. And because of this, he's lost his preeminence. And you'll note that no significant prophet, judge, priest, or king comes from Reuben. Nobody of really insignificance comes from Reuben. His turbulent life, his insolence, pride, and uncontrollable lifestyle led to the crime of incest with his father's concubine. His sexual deviance and pride cost him the blessing cost him the double portion because he went up to his father's bed. Jacob reiterates this point almost as a side comment. It's like he's exclaiming, he went up to my couch. Jacob is telling his other sons what surely they already knew. They already knew about this, but now they have the context for why Reuben is being passed over. Why Reuben is receiving this anti-blessing, as it were. Next comes Simeon and Levi. And again, we see an anti-blessing. And, they, and they're brought together, or, or they're taken together, rather, because they share the same crime. And both Simeon and Levi have the same traits of violent anger and cruelty. And so, because of this, they also share in the same condemnation. Jacob says that these brothers' weapons of violence are their swords, or possibly the word could be translated knives. 
This is their weapon of choice, their weapon of violence. Now it's interesting, the Hebrew, although it's a little difficult, the verb that's used here is the same verb which is typically used when referring to circumcision. Now it's fitting based on the circumstances. In this sense, then, the idea is that the instrument of circumcision was used as an instrument or a weapon of destruction. Which is exactly what happened, right? If you remember, they tricked the men of Shechem into circumcision and then used the occasion of their healing to murder them all. These brothers and their attack upon Shechem, because of their great anger over what had happened to their sister Dinah, brought great destruction. And, and so Jacob describes then his disassociation with them. Look, at, he says in verse 6, Let my soul come not into their counsel, or my, oh my glory be not joined to their company. He doesn't want their counsel. He doesn't really want them to, to have any, any say in these things. Counsel is where one would make plans for war. Israel ought not seek the kind of leadership that Simeon and Levi exhibited. This is not the way to go to war. And of course, we know the history of Israel. They will fight many wars. A kind of violence, angrily killing men, destroying beasts in senseless brutality. This is not the way to go. This is not the way Israel was to live. Curse, Jacob says, be their anger. This is, of course, the opposite of blessing, isn't it? This is an anti-blessing. Jacob makes the most blunt of utterances using a curse formula. Their anger was fierce, their wrath was cruel, and so God will bring upon them judgment. They will be divided in Jacob. They will be scattered throughout Israel. They will be dispersed. There will be a loss of power within the nation, or I should say among the tribes. They will be distributed throughout the land. Uh, They won't be seen necessarily as very cohesive tribes. Levi, of course, will be the tribe of the priesthood. Uh, the, the, The tribe of Levi will be apportioned 48 towns, which would be scattered throughout Israel. They won't have, really have their own land, their own portion in that sense. Simeon, according to Joshua chapter 19, will receive their inheritance in the midst of Judah. And so there's a sense in which Simeon just simply just gets absorbed into Judah. Next, Jacob moves to Judah. Finally, we find a true blessing. This is the fourth son of Leah. And literally, what it, is, it should really read, as for you, Judah. As for you, Judah. Again, we finally find a true blessing. Judah was to be blessed with rewards of wisdom, kingship, dominion, prosperity. And because of this, Judah's brothers will rejoice over him. Notice the wordplay here. Um, you wouldn't necessarily notice it in English, but in, in Hebrew, the, the name Judah, uh, the word praise, and the word hand are actually similar sounding words in Hebrew. And so his brothers will give him praise, which further validates his right to rule. He will seize fleeing enemies by the nape of their neck. 
This is a picture of conquest and victory. And the people of Judah will defeat their enemies. And of course the enemies will surround Israel. This means that his father's sons, that his uh, brothers, they will honor him. They will bow down before him. Judah will be seen as strong. He will be a conquering and a ruling tribe. In this prophecy of Judah, we see further hints, of course, of the greatest king to come from Judah. That is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will in strength subdue all his enemies and will be praised by all his brothers, for he will be God and man. Sin, Satan, and the world may seek to flee, but Christ has overcome and, and is defeating them. And so here we see hints and shadows of that which is to come, that which has come and and yet we look forward to still. Judah is further called a lion's cub. Look at the text. Now, of course, a lion is one of the largest and most powerful of hunters, which proves a danger not only to other animals, but to men as well. A lion is dangerous. The lion is also the proverbial symbol of majesty and strength. The lion is a symbol of kingship and rule. There's a reason that the monarchs of Great Britain had chosen a lion often. It's power, strength. As it stands, three out of the seven Hebrew words for lion are used in this single verse, moving in growth from a cub to a full-grown lion. As a tribe, Judah will develop along similar lines. In their youth, they will have vigor. They will go up to the prey. Now in nature, the lion lies in wait for its prey, killing by swiping with his paw or grabbing by the throat. He then stoops down. Now, here, after he, after he makes his kill, here the picture isn't so much that he's going to pounce again, but actually he's done his work and he stoops down to rest. He has subdued his enemy. And so he can rest. And so then the question is asked, who would dare get this lion up again? Who would rouse him, this great lion? Judah's victories inspire fear among any that would come against him because he is a great king. A great king, we should note, whose scepter shall not depart. Again, the scepter. The scepter is a symbol of rule and of monarchy. This prophecy of Jacob is further confirmed in the covenant which is made with David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And its ultimate fulfillment is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah's inheritance includes not only the right to rule the nation of Israel, and that is ultimately what they will do as David becomes the king, and the line of David was to rule the nation of Israel, but... His inheritance ultimately gives the right to rule all the nations. All of the nations. The scepter will not depart, verse 
verse 10, nor will the ruler's staff, which actually describes the military commander's mace. These symbols of authority and rule will not depart from Judah. Now again, the meaning of the Hebrew here is difficult. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So it may be that it will not depart until tribute comes, that is, gifts which are, are to come his way from, from his people. Or it could be translated, and some translations go this way, um, it could be until Shiloh comes. This then would refer to a place or perhaps a person. Shiloh was the place where the ark rested. If it's a person, it's referring, it has a, it's a messianic uh, title. Speaking of a great king who would come. It also could be rendered until he comes to whom it belongs, which would then refer to a messianic king who has ownership of the kingdom and who comes for his people. Now, each of these are reflected in various popular translations. Now, although the meaning of what exactly may be a bit vague, the the basic idea is still clear enough. It is a reference to Christ. Our Lord is the owner of the scepter and the mace. He has these, the rod and the rule. And He will come and He will reign over His people who will be in obedience to Him and will be subject to Him because He is the great King. And this is correct and this is a reference to the end of all things. This is the new heavens and new earth. This, is, this has eschatological implications. David would come from Judah. David would rule the nation of Israel. But a greater David would come. A greater David would rule over all of the nations. All of the peoples. All of the languages and tribes. And this, but this great king who would come would first come as the suffering servant who would die for his people. And so blessed So blessed and wealthy will Judah be that, verse 11, he will bind his donkey to the choice vine. Now a donkey so tied to a grapevine will do what? He's going to eat all the grapes. And he'll eat the vine too. Only the most wealthy would tether their donkey in such a way. And it's only somebody who says, well, I've got so much, I have such an abundance, I don't care if this animal eats everything. And further, we see that his garments will be washed in wine, in the blood of grapes. Now, again, this is actually a metaphor for plenty. Wine will flow so abundantly that it will be like water, and he will wash his clothes in it. Now, there's other pictures here as well. The parallel to wine in the verse, blood of grapes, provides us another hint describing the violence of this kind of laundering through the trampling of enemies. That's one commentator said to to his own, this one will bring joy and fullness to those who reject him. He brings terror. But there's another hint in this prophecy. The washing of garments and wine and vesture in the blood of grapes refers to the suffering of in death of Jesus, this great king will wash his clothes 
And we are washed, are we not, in the blood of our Savior. Here's this, this picture of the great king who will come. He will conquer. He's conquered us spiritually, hasn't he? He's made us to be his own. And he's done that through his own blood. He washes us clean in his own blood. Here we see, too, a connection then to the table. As we consider the Lord's table in, in, the, in the elements given there. It's very purposeful on Jesus' part, isn't it? Further, verse 12, we see his eyes are darker than wine, his, his teeth wider than milk. Now, the, the Hebrew word, which is rendered darker, could also be sparkling. The idea is that this one from Judah has such abundance that his eyes have a twinkle in them. And his teeth are white because he drinks milk. These are, again, symbols of abundance and, and plenty. Prosperity. This is the abundance of Judah. This is the abundance given to God's people through Christ. Moving on then to Leah's sixth son, verse 13. Now Zebulun is chronologically uh, Jacob's tenth. Here and in Moses' prayer, he is listed before his brother Issachar, who is actually Leah's fifth, which gives him preeminence. But Zebulun is portrayed as more energetic and prosperous, while Issachar is seen as kind of lazy and indulgent. This prediction that Zebulun would live by the sea is difficult to square with the tribe's landlocked position when the inheritances are given. And one solution is simply to see that the dwelling is not a permanent settlement, but rather a, a temporary stay, and thus not part of their tribal allotment. That would fit with the Hebrew word choice, being a settlement which is temporary. Another possible solution involves not the original allotments, but that the tribe's borders during the days of Solomon, which extend then to the Mediterranean. Eventually, uh, as, as in, in Solomon's day, they ex- expand the, the nation, they, they eventually get to the Mediterranean Sea. Another final solution is simply that the sea referred to may just simply be the Sea of Galilee. The fact that the prophecy also mentions Zebulun being involved with ships may indicate not necessarily his, his tribal allotment. In other words, what's in view here isn't necessarily the land itself, but rather his entrepreneurial energy, his hard work, that he's traveling, he's trading. The tribe's activities will take them to Sidon, which was an important port city 25 miles north of Tyre, uh, along the Mediterranean seas, part of Phoenicia. Literally, the text says that Sidon shall be his flank. It is not so much that the tribal land borders Sidon, as it is that they were involved with the Phoenicians and the sea traders. and They were developing commerce. They were trading within the vast and famous Phoenician maritime industry. This is actually in somewhat in contrast, though, to his brother, his, his older brother, the fifth son, Issachar, who is called a strong donkey. Some translations have raw-boned, now the description then is of a creature with lean, a lean bony structure which has been hardened by hard labor. 
Such was Issachar, who was neither attractive nor well-off. As a tribe, they're mostly slighted in the scriptures. They, they don't really play a significant role in much. The, the raw-boned donkey crouches between the sheepfolds. Again, the Hebrew is a bit unclear. The same word could also mean saddlebags or burdens. So here's the picture, though. The picture is of an overworked beast laying down from fatigue, enjoying some respite, either between his burdens or between his companion sheep. And like a donkey, Issachar is a stubborn worker. He's kind of lazy. He's forced to work, but he prefers rest. This is like a donkey, isn't it? Ah, Do I really have to work? He finds rest to be pleasant. He'll work hard if you make him, but rather not. The text says his resting place was good. This is surprising considering that Issachar's inheritance lies on the fertile plateau of the lower Galilee. This, This is some of the best farmland in all of Israel. And yet, like a stubborn donkey, Issachar is lazy. He doesn't work like he should. Instead, he relaxes in the pleasant farmland, but he will eventually be forced to labor. Issachar will come under Canaanite overlords. He will, his tribe will be forced into labor, which is actually the opposite of what should have happened. They will not work hard for themselves, so others will make them work hard. And so again, this is not so much a blessing as it is a rebuke of Issachar in his tribe. Next we turn, in our, in, as we looking at this prophecy and these blessings, we turn to the sons of the concubines, Bil, uh, Bilhah and Zilpah. Dan, the firstborn son of Bilhah, was the fifth son of Jacob. In verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Now you'll notice that this, I mean, this seems kind of strange, doesn't it? That it would need to be mentioned that he's going to be one of the, he's going to judge the people as one of the, one of the tribes of Israel. Well, isn't he already? He is already one of the tribes, but, but Dan is going to settle far away from Israel's center. And they're, they're, they're going to end up operating somewhat independently. In the book of Judges, during their migration, uh, we, we can read how they crushed the Canaanites who lived at Laish. Though the tribe will be small, they'll be like a serpent who hides himself well. Some of you have some experience with serpents, snakes who hide in various places and come out. Dan is going to be aggressive, dangerous. He's going to strike unexpectedly, overthrowing nations. And of all the animals named in Jacob's blessing, the snake is the only one to live alone. The tribe of Dan is a study in contrast. Incredible victories, amazing victories, and epic failures. In fact, if we think about Judges, uh, judges again, after that, that crushing victory at Laish, the first thing that Dan decides to do is set up an idolatrous cult. We just won for the Lord, so let's go worship idols. That's Dan. 
Samson comes from Dan. You know the story of Samson, right? Impressive victories over the Philistines, and yet he was morally corrupt, tricked by a wicked woman. Jacob's blessing then contains mixed messages, and this this becomes the reality for Dan. Dan's a study in contrast. They're in a vulnerable position, but they will act out in violence, thus causing Jacob to, in some sense, pause. Again, there's a, you can notice there's a few places that he seems to almost pause in his prophecy and make, make statements. And here he cries out to God for salvation. It's almost as if he's seeing what's going to happen. Verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And this will be the cry of Dan. The troubles they will see. The next three, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali, verses 19 through 21, he moved through rather quickly, in almost a, in a rhyming sort of manner, playing on certain sounds in Hebrew. Gad's name, we might remember, means good fortune, but this is reversed as the tribe is raided by raiders. Gad will live an unfortunate life. He will strike back at, at his enemy's heels, which is to say that he will cause his enemies to flee and he will attack them from the rear, where they're most vulnerable. But, but, but they'll never be large enough to wage a full-scale war. And so Gad will engage in guerrilla tactics, attacking at the heels. As with Reuben in the half-tribe of Manasseh, Gad's land was sandwiched between the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Arameans. And so they're going to be involved in constant wars. They're going to be struggling for survival. Which will, of course, make them a tribe known for their warriors. While Gad fights for his life, in contrast, Asher will enjoy rich food as his allotment of land is in the, in the fertile land on the, high, uh, the western highlands of Galilee. The blessing indicates that he will enjoy the fat of the land, which, it, which actually fits his name well. Asher's birth name uh, brought ha- his, Asher's birth brought happiness to Leah. The rich, fertile soil was perfect for the growing of olive trees, which follow with, which will allow Asher to quote bathe his feet in oil. Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-four. Now, history was not happy for Asher. And Jacob's blessings may, may give us something of a hint of that. Although the land could produce food which was fit for royalty, Judges chapter 1 tells us that Asher failed to expel the Canaanites. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. They didn't, they didn't drive out the Canaanites. And so they were vulnerable to, the, to, the, to those who remained. And they were vulnerable to interference from the Phoenicians. And so the rich delicacies, which were fit for a king, provided the perfect reason for foreign interest and subjugation. Nevertheless, any negative tones are muted by the expectation of great blessing for this tribe. Next, verse 21, we come to Naphtali, who it says is a, is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Now, Naphtali is likened to a sure-footed deer, who is noted for her calving. This tribe, like the Persian fallow deer, this is a, a, a particular species of deer, which is uh, 
found in Israel and, and, and also the nation of Iran. This is, that's, that species is noted for their beauty and their fleetness. They've let, they've let loose, they're free, they're agile. This is, this is Neftali. Neftali's inheritance is going to lie in the upper Galilee region, to the west of the lake, and extending north along the Jordan River. They will border Zebulun, Issachar, and Asher, but it'll be, you can note that there's no northern border that's ever delineated for them, which is sort of interesting. Perhaps because they were free to roam as they pleased, like a deer would, roaming about. Beautiful fawns is a homonym for beautiful words. You, know, you, you notice, uh, and if, you, if you read various translations, you'll find that the translations are disagree with one another. Well, there's reasons for that. These are, there's lots of word plays on here. It's hard to know which way uh, the writer is going with. But here it's a homonym. It sounds similar to uh, beautiful words. Hence the difference in the translations. Uh, so interpretations vary from a tribe who wanders bringing beautiful words to, to one who, who wanders. Then you might have one who wanders around and settles down and has children. But the main point, the main point is the blessing and the prosperity, the Lord's blessing upon this tribe. Next we come to the blessings given to Jacob's 11th and favored son, Joseph. This is Rachel's first son. And this blessing is reflective of that which had been given to the two adoptive grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Remember, Jacob had already blessed them. And they share, those two share equally in the inheritance of their uncles. Joseph, remember, was given the double portion. The double portion that which should have been given to Reuben, but is given to Joseph instead. Joseph, as a tribe, will be like a fruitful vine which runs over a wall. Though Rachel had initially been barren, her progeny will produce the most fruitful tribe. The Hebrew seems to say a fruitful son, which interestingly enough, would have the meaning, uh, the, the, a meaning of a vine or a wild donkey, which if it, if it were wild donkey, that would maintain the animal imagery. The branches running over the wall, though, depicts expansion, fruitfulness, growth. If you've ever had a vine grow on a wall, if it's a vigorous vine, you may see it about, about take over the whole wall. That's kind of the picture here. Joseph will grow. His tribe, um, his, the quiver will be full, as it were. But even as he grows and, and, and has, has success, he will be bitterly attacked. Archers will come. They will take aim at him. They will harass him. And so there's danger which seems to lurk for Joseph. Even, even here as the mood of the oracle changes from you know, fruitfulness and, and overflowing the wall. to But, but there's, there's these archers taking aim at him. His success, his fruitfulness will be met with bitter enemies and hatred. Now the nature of the arrows is probably figurative and the identity of the opponents is unknown. The term used for harass, 
could be also hatred or hostility. This is actually the same word which was used to speak of Esau's grudge against Jacob. So we may ask, are the enemies which Joseph's tribes will face, those who are taking aim at him, those who have hostility towards him, were these his own brothers? Well, maybe. Whatever the case is, Joseph will be sustained by the Lord. Notice what it says. It says, his bow remains unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. And then Jacob goes on to saying, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Archers are taking aim at Joseph, but he doesn't even take up his bow to shoot back. Why? Because the Lord will protect him. The shepherd, the rock of Israel. As a shepherd, God leads and cares for his people. He protects them. He provides for them. He's the shepherd of Joseph. Joseph doesn't need to take up his bow. Joseph doesn't need to defend himself because the Lord will defend him. Because he is the good shepherd. And he is the rock. And how is it the Lord is the rock? He is solid ground. He will not be shaken or moved. And this the Lord can be relied upon because he is faithful and true. So so though Joseph may come under attack, he he need not respond to the attacks because the Lord is God. And his promises for him are true, no matter what may come his way. It is the Almighty who will bless him with blessings from heaven, blessings from the deep, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. You notice that six times in Joseph's oracle, the root word for blessing is used. The blessings include fertility of the land, the benefits of the waters which come from both the heavens and from the deep, the blessings of fertility of the body. In Joseph are reflected, by the way, all the blessings which are seen at creation. In Genesis chapter 1, they're being reflected again in the tribe of Joseph. Jacob concludes his oracle of blessing on Joseph by stating that this blessing will be beyond that of his parents, greater than the ancient mountains. He's going to be more blessed than Abraham was. He's going to be more blessed than Isaac was. It will be greater than the mountains that they see there. This speaks of magnitude, the magnitude of blessings. I mean, imagine the largest mountain, the largest mountain you've ever seen. Greater than that. If you uh, spent any time near large mountains, you could, they could be awesome, can't they? Not like here, we, we have just sort of hills. Go to the Rockies, right? Even the Appalachians. They have amazing mountains. God's blessing is beyond those. Larger. Think the magnitude of them. Finally we come to the last and the youngest of Jacob's sons, Benjamin, verse 27. Who here he's called a ravenous wolf. Devouring his prey in the morning and dividing the spoil in the evening. Benjamin's tribe will have the reputation for being brave and skilled in war. 
They will devour their enemies, but they will share in the spoil which comes. Now, this description of Benjamin is, in some sense, surprising at this point, because throughout the Joseph narrative, Benjamin has been a rather passive character. And yet, here, his his future blessing is very different from that. His trial will be anything but passive. The picture of Benjamin's aggressive character looks forward to his military feats during the settlements and during the early monarchy years. Well, the narrative then ends with a summary statement. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them. Blessing each with a blessing suitable to him, each was given a blessing which was appropriate. All the tribes of Israel received recognition, even those who were not held in regard. Even they were given an anti-blessing. They were given this because of their behavior. These blessings come under the authority of their father, Jacob. Jacob was alone. He was the only one authorized to pass along these blessings to his sons. That which was bestowed was that which was suitable for each one. Because each of these tribes will play a unique role in the life of the nation of Israel. The blessings of Jacob reinforces the unity of Israel as a nation. You know, these these aren't going to be 12 tribes which kind of go off and do their own thing. They're going to be a cohesive nation. Even Even though at times they do try to go off and do their own things, don't they? There will, be, there will be a unity in this nation, and yet each of these tribes will have their own distinctive story and place and role. Well, as we've looked at this prophecy of Jacob and its relation to men and the tribes in which they were directed, I said at the beginning that we should also note how this prophecy points us to Christ and its application to us in the church as well. Probably the clearest of the prophecies in its messianic orientation is that which was spoken to Judah. And we noted this earlier. Judah is the one given the kingship. It is from Judah that the kings would come. From this tribe would come David. And the covenant which is made with him. And through David would come the Messiah. The King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Judah is called the Lion. In Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is called the Lion. When no one could open the scroll in the vision of John, John says he began to weep. And in verse 5 of Revelation chapter 5, it says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Like a conquering lion, Jesus has conquered sin and death. Jesus went to the cross, enduring the shame, and became sin for us. And he was raised from the dead and he has conquered death. And he has taken our sin and has given to us life by faith in him when we trust and rest in him. Jesus has conquered sin 
and death for you. And after Jesus was raised from the dead, He ascended into heaven, and He is even now seated at the right hand of God the Father in glory. And the day is coming when He will return again. And He has the scepter, and He has the staff, because He is the King, and He is the conqueror, the ruler, the defender, the redeemer, and He is our Savior and our God. In light of what we see in Genesis chapter 49, as his clothes are washed in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes, it is then fitting, as we consider the ministry of Jesus, think about what was Jesus' first miracle? It was the wedding feast at Cana in Galilee, where he turns water into wine. And, that, and wine plays a significant role in the supper blood of Jesus shed for sinners. The New Testament declares that the Scriptures have been fulfilled, that Christ is the line of the tribe of Judah. He has come. Further in John's revelation, the prophecy will be consummated when the lion of the tribe of Judah executes judgment on all of the nations. Remember that the prophecy given to Judah was that not only that Judah, the tribe, would rule Israel, but that ultimately they had the right to all the nations. The lion of the tribe of Judah will execute judgment on all of the nations. It is Jesus Christ who has brought peace between God and men, and it is Christ who will usher in the final peace of the new heavens and new earth as He subdues all His and our enemies. Christ brings peace, blessing. And this is a blessing which we look forward to, not only eschatologically, we, we not only look forward to that peace on the last day, but it's a peace which we can enjoy even now. The blessings of the tribes include abundance, overflow, riches, rest, What does Ephesians 1 speak of? Ephesians chapter 1 speaks of being blessed by God in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have a redemption through His blood and grace which has been lavished upon us. We're not talking about temporal riches. We're talking about spiritual riches. We're talking about peace with God. We're talking about joy in the Holy Spirit. Because of what Christ has done for you. All the temporal blessings of the tribes are but shadows of the spiritual blessings which you and I even now enjoy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the final blessedness we will enjoy in glory when we are with the Lord, when we enjoy Him forever in glory for all eternity. And we can look forward to that with great anticipation and great joy. What marvelous riches are ours in our Savior and in our God. What blessings Jesus gives to us, His people. Let's pray. Gracious Father in Heaven, we thank You for these blessings that we've studied. For we can understand that though these blessings were given in a particular time and place, from Jacob to his sons, they overflow to us as your people. That in them we see the blessedness that is enjoyed by your people. We thank you, O God, 
for, for our Savior Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins, but also for the joy we have in Him, the rest that you offer to us. That we can, we can, we can trust in the Lord. We give you all praise and glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.